Good morning, everyone. Um, we're having a class on ethics, uh, and today we're looking at the ethics of divorce. I get the easy ones. I got divorce and I got hell. <laughs> I'm being facetious, neither one are easy. Now, before I say anything about divorce, I realize that this is a highly charged emotional issue for many, many people, not the least of which are those who've experienced divorce for any reason. And I want you to know it is not my desire or intent today to uh, bring about any kind of condemnation regardless of your situation. Um, if your divorce was for unbiblical reasons, you do the same thing anybody does when they do something for uh, or violate scripture is you confess your sin and repent. And so that's hard to do, and I know this is, again, a highly charged emotional uh, topic, but what I want to do is sort of give you a, this subject would be worthy of an entire five or six weeks at least, and I'm going to try to give you in a nutshell what I think the Bible's teaching on divorce is uh, and remarriage, uh, and I think that will be if, if I can at least communicate that in a clear way, that would be great. So let's start with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, we can look at this subject, biblically speaking, and uh, come to conclusions. Um, and we know there's a lot of disagreement about this particular topic, and we pray that what is said would be said with grace, and yet at the same time would be faithful to the authority of the Word of God. And so I pray and ask for your help as one who teaches uh, in all humility and understanding of my own limitations. I ask that the Holy Spirit will speak to us today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we talk about the subject of divorce, uh, we'll get to the biblical perspective on divorce in just a moment, but I would, uh, was surprised in my research in finding out that the divorce race rate has decreased. In 2021, it was 45%. So far this year, 2022, 44.2%. Do any of you have any idea why that's happening? People are living together and not getting married. That's why the divorce rate is decreasing. And so that tells you the number of people and families and networks of people. I, I hardly think there's a family anywhere that hasn't been touched by this particular thing. I remember the first time I ever heard of divorce was when I was a little boy. And there was a country singer, and her name was Tammy Wynette. What else could you be if your name was Tammy Wynette other than a country singer? And she was a very popular, famous country singer. And in 1968, Tammy Wynette released the most controversial country song that had ever been released. And the name of the song was D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Like spelled out like parents used to do in front of their children. When I was a boy, you would never say a woman was pregnant. You would say she's expecting. And my mother said, well, she's expecting, and I would say, expecting what? A baby. <laughs> and you wouldn't say the word divorce back where I grew up in the culture I grew up in. But I remember when Tammy Wynette released this hit, 
My dad's coworker, the man he shared probably 25 or 30 years working with, uh, at that moment swore off country music. He was never listening to country music again, which at my uh, young age was, well, that's a no-brainer. How hard is that to do? Because I didn't like country music. Uh, and country music back then is nothing like it is now. Uh, so a little levity to start with. Um, Tammy was married five times, by the way, Tammy Wynette. And she was married to a either sociopath, psychopath named George No-Show Jones, and who's a great country uh, songwriter, and that's about the greatest thing you could say about him. Uh, otherwise, he had a lot of problems. And so the scope of the problem is pretty significant. What I wanted to do to start with, however, is we're going to look at the scriptural data regarding divorce, but before we do that, I'd like to give you a definition of marriage that I think will be really helpful. And so here's the definition. Marriage is the unique one flesh relationship of a man and woman joined together by God in a union that he wills to be both permanent and exclusive, binding the couple to each other in a lifelong companionship of common life Life, long companionship. And the second part of the definition, which I think is also important, and you'll see why as we go further, um, uh, and conjugal love. Conjugal Anybody know what conjugal is? One flesh relationship, the physical, sexual aspect of the relationship, the one flesh is conjugal love. Anything that threatens either one of these is to me what divorce is all about. Anything that dissolves either one of these would be perhaps regarded as biblical grounds of divorce. And so I think the reason why, not the sole reason, but perhaps one of the reasons why so many people are so cavalier about divorce is they do not understand what marriage actually is. Scripture uses covenantal language to describe marriage. The Lord has been uh, witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, although she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When scripture says that a man shall cleave to his wife, it is using a covenantal term used elsewhere to express the way the Israelites were to cleave in affection and loyalty to the Lord. We use the word cleave, we mean what? A meat cleaver does what? Cuts apart. But when the Bible uses the word cleave, think of the word Velcro, sticking to loyal, a binding kind of relationship. And so, it is using a covenantal term used elsewhere that speaks about loyalty to the Lord. Marriage is often used as an analogy in the Old Testament of God's covenant relation with Israel and in the New Testament of Christ's relationship with the church. This covenantal relation between a man and a woman was intended by God to be loving, loyal, and permanent. Consequently, according uh, 
to, and I'm reading from a position paper here uh, by our denomination. Uh, it is the duty of the husband and wife to maintain the unity and integrity of their marriage of cohabitation and coition. Should separation occur, reconciliation is to be sought. And so that is the divine ideal for marriage. Now, what has our denominational or tradition, which would be the Reformed tradition, taught regarding divorce and remarriage? In the light of our view of marriage, it would seem almost incongruous to talk about divorce and remarriage. Nevertheless, most of us would likely agree with the statement of the General Assembly, divorce is therefore an abnormality arising out of human sinfulness. It was tolerated in the civil legislation of the Old Testament, but the Mosaic provision was given only for the hardness of your hearts. The civil legislation took into account in this matter the insubordination to the will of God characteristic of unbelieving Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus calls his people to faithfulness to the original will of God for marriage as expressed in the creation ordinance. That happens both in Matthew chapter 5, 31 to 32, and Matthew 19, uh, verses 3 through 8. The civil legislation took into account in this matter, excuse me, uh, the New Apostle Paul presses this teaching of our Lord upon the early Christian community in Corinth. The original idea is to be maintained by the people of God in this age of the fullness of God's saving blessing. This is not to say that divorce is never sanctioned in the New Testament, but it is only sanctioned in circumstances of grave infidelity, adultery, and willful, irremediable des uh, desertion. These are definitive actions that strike at the exclusiveness of the marriage bond, malicious desertion, its permanence. And so as I said, if the definition is this, then what would dissolve this would be irremediable desertion. And then of course this can mean more than what it looks like. And conjugal would be unfaithfulness. So, if the word divorce means, and it's moikaia in the Greek, if it means to dissolve the bond, the covenantal bond of marriage with another person, it would seem at least, if you look at the whole corpus of the New Testament and old alike, considering this subject, that there are a couple of things that strike at the vitals of that union, okay? Two things that strike at the vitals. And so I'm sort of giving, I'm sort of tipping my hand to you <laughs> as we go through this study. Uh, you know, some people look at the Bible and divorce and they're like W.C. Fields who was reading the Bible on his deathbed and some man came in and said, W.C., he said, I've never seen you read the Bible before. He says, why are you reading the Bible? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. And a lot of people go to Scripture looking for loopholes. But what I want to do is guard the integrity of the Scripture and yet at the same time deal with what is said. And it's not easy to do. It's difficult. Now, our denominational heritage says the innocent party, 
that is the offended party in such circumstances is free to remarry. So if something can dissolve the marriage bond, then the freedom to remarry goes with it because that person is no longer bound to the one uh, that they were married to because of the dissolution of the bond. Therefore, the, quote, innocent party in either of these has the freedom to remarry. Uh, scripture does not forbid the remarriage of the guilty party in such cases. Where there is genuine conversion evidenced by sincere and heartfelt repentance and faith in Christ, the church, after providing pastoral counseling and instruction in the biblical teaching concerning marriage, may approve of remarriage in the Lord. Now, what are some of the views out there? Let's say Roman Catholics are uh, known for their stance of uh, absolutely no grounds for divorce. However, you can buy an annulment if you got enough money and you know the right people. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, well, I don't know if I should say this. I'll say it anyway. It's, it's kind of like the uh, Speaker of the House being served communion by the Pope this week. That's pretty interesting to me with the church's teaching on abortion. I mean, you got to be pretty elastic for that to happen. <laughs> That's all I'll say. It, 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 you know, it, it, it's incongruous to say the least. Now, what views can be found among the evangelical and reformed denominations and circles regarding this? First, there's one group that says there's absolutely no divorce, no remarriage. Some believers argue that there's no legitimate divorces and at all, at all, and only death can dissolve the marriage bond. We know death can dissolve the marriage bond because Scripture clearly says it does. And Paul's encouragement to young widows to marry. Uh, where, uh, and so as a result of that, uh, some people believe that only death dissolves the marriage bond. They would see the exception clause in Matthew uh, characteristically interpreted of one of two ways. View number one, it refers to premarital unchastity during betrothal, where except it be for fornication or except it be for unchastity, this group would argue that uh, if the betrothed proved unfaithful during the period or was discovered on the first night of the marriage not to be a virgin, then the contract could be broken. Uh, number two, says that the exception clause refers to unlawful incestuous marriages within prohibited degrees as prevailed or as prescribed in the book of Leviticus chapter 18. Now, I've read these arguments thoroughly and you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics to come to the conclusion that these people have come to who hold this view. And I'll explain it more maybe if we have time. It's hard to do in the length of time we have. But there are people who do hold that view. Uh, Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, holds a variation of this particular view. But that is a view that has been promulgated from time to time in the evangelical church. Then there are others who see strictly limited grounds for divorce and free, uh, remarriage. 
The general consensus among Reformed believers is the view that the Bible neither condones nor commands divorce, but rather permits and regulates divorce due to sin. However, a person can divorce only for adultery and separation of an unbelieving spouse. In the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as no way can be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is the cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. And so the Bible emphasizes, and I, I think it's right, it emphasizes marriage and reconciliation as the proper steps to take. But there are some places where it seems to me the Bible's very clear that there are things that can dissolve the marriage relationship. For example, uh, let's say that you're married and your wife commits adultery and uh, do you, are you required by scripture to divorce her? And the answer is no. You could forgive, you could re reconcile, you could attempt to rebuild the marriage. Do you have biblical standing if it did end in divorce? My opinion would be yes. You're not required. You are required to forgive. You're not required uh, to, uh, and often since it involves two people, you, know, you don't have the power to force someone <laughs> to do, quote, whatever the right thing is. Uh, broader grounds for divorce and remarriage. Some other believers view that the major verses under question, Matthew 19 mostly and 1 Corinthians 7, should be interpreted with a little more latitude. David Atkinson, a British scholar, holds that there are sins other than fornication which may, by their gross persistent nature, break the marriage covenant just as much as fornication and are therefore grounds for divorce. Okay. Greg Bonson, who some of you have heard of, Greg Bonson is a theonomist. He's now in heaven. He's dead. And a theonomist meant that he held some pretty stringent views uh, regarding the place of the law and the life of the church. Uh, a lot of people out west really liked Greg Bonson. They didn't like him where I went to school at Reformed Theological Seminary. They kicked him out from teaching and so I may be colored by the fact that I came into school the year he left but here's what happened he was sending out young preachers preaching in Mississippi the law of God in such a way that the elders of the churches were calling the seminary and said don't send us another guy out here who talks like that guy and so he got fired and that's why he came out here here's his view on divorce Greg Bonson argues that pornea Fornication in Matthew 19 involves more than sexual immorality. It could be interpreted as including any violation of the essential commitments of marriage covenant, including spousal abuse or the refusal to provide protection and sustenance necessary for daily living. David Clowney said this. David County believes Clowney believes that the New Testament writers were not intending to give an exhaustive list of exceptions for divorce. We should view the text on divorce as examples of breaking the marriage covenant and seek to apply the examples to particular situations such as persistent physical abuse or attempts on the life of a spouse or so forth. And so 
someone like Clowney would argue that pornea or unfaithfulness in the marriage is a broader category than just adultery. Uh, and the reason why a guy like that might say that is because the exception clause includes the word, not adultery, but pornea. Pornea, I know you're familiar with that word. What English word do we get from pornea? All the men say pornography, right? Pornea, <laughs> which is a general rubric or category under which all unlawful, unbiblical sexual relations happen. And you go down the list, it covers them all. And so that might be why some people would say, if Jesus meant adultery only, in uh, Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, he would have used the word moikaya, which is the Greek word for divorce, or, or for adultery, excuse me. Uh, he did not use that word, he used pornea, which seems to include that, but also extend that beyond uh, one meaning. And so that's the reason why you might have differences of opinion on this subject. Now, I'm not going to ask for questions because you can see where I am in the outline. <laughs> I don't want to drag my feet. I want to get with it here. Uh, so, to seek to multiply, some would say the liberal Protestant view of no-fault divorce. I, would, I did want to talk about this, no-fault divorce, which I believe Nevada is a no-fault divorce state, right? You know where that started, don't you? Where? California. California. And it, it made its way over here. And so we're a no-fault state, at least legally speaking. And liberal theologians have uh, always kind of held that view. And Clowney argues to seek to multiply such exceptions would be perverse and precisely contrary to the intention of the Lord and his apostles. Come to these views is the idea that appropriate grounds for divorce would allow for remarriage. Are we to understand that scripture indeed allows for divorce? Divorce was permitted in scripture. It must be conceded that divorce was practiced. It's found all over the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, who wrote a bill of divorce to Israel? Who wrote a bill of divorce to Israel? No, not Moses. God. <laughs> God wrote a bill of divorce to Israel. It's in the book of Hosea, whoever said that's right. But God's the one who threatened to do that uh, with Israel. So yeah, divorce is practiced in Scripture. Just because something is practiced doesn't mean it's necessarily legitimate, but it was permitted. And under certain circumstances, proved to be permanently valid and inviolable. It also conceded that divorce was permitted or tolerated, and the penalty of civil or ecclesiastical ostracism was not attached to it. That is, you don't get the right to shun a divorced person. But it's very necessary to distinguish, John Murray says, 
between the sufferance or toleration on the one hand and divine approval or sanction on the other, permission, sufferance, toleration was granted, but underlying this very notion is the idea of wrong. Now, to say that God intended for marriage never to be broken does not mean that marriage union is unbreakable. Otherwise, God would say, wouldn't have said, let not man, what? Put it asunder. To say that God intended for every marriage to never be broken does not mean the marriage union is unbreakable. In some instances, God breaks it by death. For Paul specifically says that the surviving spouse is free to remarry again. Moreover, younger widows are encouraged to do so too in the book of 1 Timothy. Divorce dissolved marriage in Scripture. That divorce was more than a separation in Scripture is noted by Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian. Divorce is not a mere separation. Divorce annuls the marriage contract so that the parties are no longer man and wife. They stand henceforth to each other in the same rela relation as they were before marriage. A study for the term divorce in scripture support the view that divorce is not merely a separation. The Old Testament term for divorce, which occurs in the phrase bill of divorce, is to cut off or to hew off, to expel, to put away, to dismiss, send away, let go, put away. The New Testament has similar words in the Greek meaning the same thing, to set free, release, dismiss, send away, that's apoluo, to separate and divide, karizo, to send away and let go, afii me. And so the notion of severance of being cut off is implied with the contextual use of these terms. A strong argument may be made as well from the customs of Jesus' day. Christ allowed for a bill of divorce to be given in the case of pornea. The essential text of the bill of divorce recorded in the Mishnah is, Lo, thou art free to marry any man. Such a bill of divorce recorded in the Mishnah says, The Mishnah goes on to record the wording of Rabbi Judah. Let this be from me thy writ of divorce and letter and of dismissal and deeds of liberation, that thou may marry who whatsoever man thou wilt. Now, the bill of divorce was really given to protect the woman. Why? Because the woman, this is a patriarchal culture, and the woman was utterly dependent upon the man for everything. And therefore, to send her out as an adulteress gives her no way of surviving in the culture. Uh, she would be unmarriageable, so it was really, in some respects, a very gracious act toward the woman given the circumstances of the day. It is clearly God's will that marriage be permanent, but it is obviously possible that marriage can be broken. Lorraine Bettner gives this quote from Gerhardus Voss, who I was surprised to read this from Voss, but I don't know Voss, so here's what he said. He said, we may have on our parlor table a beautiful and costly vase, it ought to be handled carefully. It ought not to be broken. It was, made, it was not made to be smashed. It was made to exist as a thing of beauty and grace. But it is not impossible to break it. 
And if a member of the family breaks it through carelessness or in a fit of temper smashes it deliberately, there's nothing to do but sweep up the broken fragments and dispose of them. We will not say this vase was not intended to be broken, therefore it's impossible to break it. The vase is unbreakable. Therefore, in spite of the fact that it lies in shattered fragments on the floor, we will not throw it away, we will keep it forever. No one would say that about a broken vase. Yet substantially, the argument of those who say that the marriage bond is indissoluble and unbreakable. It is dissoluble and it is breakable. Now, um, I'm kind of going to jump uh, to a little bit of a hyperspeed here. Uh, how does God look at divorce? Malachi 2 is the passage that everybody turns to where the Lord hates divorce. But there really is, and you just have to, I could go to great lengths to demonstrate this. Uh, there's no doubt that God hates divorce for the entire context of the passage of Malachi 2 certainly supports that. A more straightforward translation of the Hebrew confirmed by the Septuagint reads, if anyone hating his wife divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, then violence covers his garment, says the Lord of hosts. Now, look at some of the scriptural passages regarding uh, divorce. It's kind of what I want to do next. And in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy, uh, there is the phrase uh, called um, something indecent. Let me see. Let me get this right. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. What is indecency? Well, it's a Hebrew word, to a com combination of words. It is er, vath, dabar. I know y'all say this all the time. <laughs> er, vath, dabar. And so dabar in Hebrew means thing. And er, vath usually means unseemly and so something indecent in Malachi generally means uh, something that is it's a compound word and it means something indecent or something unseemly something indecent Now, there were two schools of thought among the rabbinic tradition in the New Testament. One is the school of Hillel, and the other is the school of Shammai. I know if you've been around here, you've probably heard those terms before. But these two schools were present during the time that Jesus was doing his ministry uh, on earth. And so as a result of that, uh, their views dominated the first century uh, culture and were the two options, let us say, that people had 
uh, in that regard. And so let me see if I can find in my paperwork who shot John on this. Uh, it's a veritable catalog up here. Oh, here they are. The School of Shammai says the following. A man may not divorce his wife. Excuse me, I misspelled Shammai. I'm surprised you didn't catch it. Shammai. No, it's, it's A. No, no, I'm talking about the rabbinic school that followed Rabbi Shammai. You're right that Shema is another Hebrew word. It has to do with the doctrine of God. Uh, the school of Shammai says, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found in her something improper, and it is said because he hath found some unseemly thing in her. But the school of Hillel says, Even if a dish is spoiled for him, because he has found something unseemly in her, even if he found another more beautiful than she is, as it is said, then it comes to pass if she finds no favor in his eyes. So this would be, Shammai would be the more conservative view. And Hillel would be what? The more liberal view. So understand that when Jesus is asked questions about divorce, some of the people asking the question followed Hillel. Some followed Shammai, and that's why he answers it differently when he answers it. That's why you need background study to the New Testament to understand. Otherwise, you've got Jesus contradicting himself because there are two other places where he doesn't mention any grounds biblically for dissolution of a marriage bond. But anyway, these two schools could be summarized this way. Uh, the Hillel school majored on the word thing saying if anything in the woman displeases the man he can put her away the Shammai school marriaged on Ervath or the unseemly indecent thing and that would probably be closer to the exception clause given in the New Testament and so uh Just in the writings of the, uh, the Mishnah and others would be something unseemly usually would fall into what we would consider pornea, uh, the, uh, any act of physical unfaithfulness either before uh, or during uh, the marriage. Um, the thing group, Hillel, was basically saying, if you don't want her, you don't like her, you wake up tomorrow morning, you don't want to be your wife, just come up with some reason, but write her a bill and send her away. And so that was basically the two schools at the time. And so that's why Jesus does address these questions the way that he does. Uh, and so, the Mosaic permission was enacted as an accommodation to the hardness of hearts. 
When Jesus affirmed that Moses framed the provision concerning the letter of dismissal out of regard to people's hardness of heart, he was using an established legal category of action allowed out of consideration for wickedness or weakness. The intent of the Mosaic command was not to approve arbitrary divorce, but to limit the consequences of male domineering sin. And so the exception clause that we see Jesus use often, let's say Matthew 19, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, which is in the Greek, me epipornia, and marries another woman commits adultery. Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, this is Matthew 5:32, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries that divorced woman commits adultery. And so when you look at those in the exception clause, there seems to be, I would only not say seems to be, but there, there is a valid exception of something here that can dissolve the marriage context. The question then becomes, okay, what, what is it specifically? And I think it's pretty interesting when you look in depth at some of these issues as to how uh, in the history of the church these things have been viewed. Uh, I don't have time to exegete these passages in depth other than to mention that if, and this is what I've said at the beginning, if something threatens or destroys either one of these desertion or unfaithfulness as it's translated in our Bibles then that becomes a in my opinion legitimate biblical ground for divorce that is not required if anybody found themselves in that situation I think it would be the duty and responsibility of the elders of the church to provide oversight to encourage reconciliation uh, with every fiber of their being as long as possible. Uh, and so, but I do think we can say that, um, and what I will do, in case some of you are thinking, uh, I have questions that I know you're not going to have time to answer, is I will print the PCA position paper on this subject and place it in the back next Sunday. It will be there. You'll have an opportunity, if you like, to pick it up, take it home, read it in more detail. Granted, in a 45-minute Sunday school class with 50 pages, I can't say it all. But I'm trying. I'm, I don't. I don't want to be reductionistic. I do want to cover the ground. But I think I've covered pretty much what needs to be said in that regard. One last thing, though, I want to get to regarding the exception clause. If I can find it. Um, there are people who argue over what the word pornea means. And what they do is they take this term pornea right here. And what they try to do is press it as far as they can press it, to expand reasons for 
divorce. And there are limitations, lexically speaking, of words and semantics of what a word can mean and why Jesus chose this particular word and the context he uses it in. And so what I would say in regard to that is be careful of people who are quick to expand it to cover all reasons, especially their own. Uh, I, I think the biblical sanctity of marriage should be upheld as much as we can possibly do it. But there are a lot of people who understand. Let me give you an example of someone who sort of broadened the sense of applying the meaning of pornea. Now this comes from the PCA position paper. We agree that pornea refers to sexual immorality, but sexual immorality could be understood to include all kinds of sexual sins, such as inordinate lust, pornography, or masturbation. To be sure, these sins are sins that impinge against the one flesh relationship, but they do not necessarily break it. We ask then, what does Jesus mean by pornea in this passage as grounds for divorce? We believe Jesus intended pornea to be understood in a more limited way as referring to those external sexual actions which would clearly break the one flesh principle of marriage. The whole passage centers on a marriage relationship and the exception focuses on an act that may become the reason for a divorce. Therefore, we must distinguish between those sexual sins that clearly break the one flesh union and those that don't. Adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, incest are examples of sexual immorality that break the one flesh union precisely because they involve sexual union with being other than the one's marriage partner. They amount to adultery. Other acts of sexual immorality do not as clearly serve to break the one flesh relationship the committee, that is the study committee for this paper, would argue that masturbation and the destructive sin of pornography, pornography per se are not grounds for divorce because they do not unmistakably break the one flesh relationship. But if a person becomes so obsessed with that, they become a substitute for fulfilling the conjugal rights of the spouse, then they could be understood to break the one flesh union. Understand that the argument is there are two things that can break the one flesh union. One is unfaithfulness of any kind with any other living being in a sexual external act. The other is irremediable desertion, which could include, according to this committee and according to me, things more than just leaving a person it could contain things or include things such as severe abuse, uh, uh, violence. Um, let, me, let me finish up with, gosh, I have about eight things I want to finish up with, and I got, what, two minutes? Well, I got to speak next, so you know, it's got to stop somewhere. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, some people exp expand that. We're quick to add, however, that the list of sins tantamount to desertion, can't, desertion cannot be very long. 
To qualify, a sin must have the same extreme effect on someone's physical abandonment of his spouse. Both pornea and desertion are objective acts by which a marriage covenant might be broken. The Bible gives no justification for divorce based on merely inward emotional and subjective reasons. Even if we find justification for interpreting pornea and desertion in a broader sense, then uh, some have, we must be broadened only within the boundaries of serious objective acts. So they must not be interpreted in any way that opens the floodgates to divorce based on subjective reasons such as irreconcilable difference, emotional separation, loss of affection, and the like. So that's the list. Now let me conclude with about Biblical principles regarding divorce, and this will be it. There are eight of, six of them. Number one, marriage is more than a bilateral contract in which only the will of the two parties is involved and certainly more than a romantic liaison based on erotic attraction. Marriage is a covenant witnessed by God whereby he joins the couple in a relationship he intends to be a permanent sexually exclusive union. Divorce is not a solution for marital disappointment or difficulty. Christians should be encouraged to believe that resources are available for making their marriages work, to face up to the responsibilities and failures, seeking God's grace and forgiveness, and to believe that to endure hardship and suffering is preferable to disobeying a clear command of Christ. The covenantal commitment of a man and woman to each other to be joined in a lifelong companionship of common life and conjugal love provides the context for trust and patience when disappointments and difficulties arise. Nevertheless, it must be recognized that some marriages are destroyed by radical breaches of covenant troth. Such are the ravages of sin upon the marital relation, the bond of which is moral, not metaphysical. The wrong in such cases is the destruction of the relationship so that the covenant cannot be fulfilled of which divorce is the public and legal attestation. God hates covenant infidelity in all its hideous forms, marital forms, adultery, incest, arbitrary divorce, malicious desertion, marital violence. All of these are destructive behaviors that strike at the very heart of the unique one flesh union of husband and wife. The adulterer, the deserter, the inveterate abuser are likely guilty of gross betrayal of their marriage companion. By their action, they willfully repudiate the one flesh relationship of the marriage covenant and so provide just cause for dissolution of the marriage bond. Whether given a case for marital violation is both radical and irremediable can be judged only by the particular circumstances. It's not a one-size-fits-all mandate here. The premium that the Bible, that was my editorial comment, the premium that the Bible places on the commitment of lifelong marital union and on the seeking of reconciliation, even in extreme circumstances of provocation, means that there is always a strong presumption against divorce. The Westminster Confession wisely counsels that the persons concerned be not left to their own wills and discre discretion in their own case. With this, the focus shifts to the practical questions of how the church may be uh, available to persons with troubled or broken marriages to help and to heal. So, that's what I have for you. Does anybody have a question that you just can't sit on? Good, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible's teaching. Lord, I know, I know that there are people here who've been, 
who hate divorce in the same way God hates divorce because they've been through it. And I pray that you will give them a measure of comfort today to know that um, living in this world is challenging and difficult and fraught with all kinds of pits to fall in and all kinds of struggles in life. And I just pray that you would encourage everyone today that your arms are open wide to those of us who come to you in repentance and faith. You will forgive our sin and remember it against us no more. And we pray in Jesus' name. One last thing. Um, somebody gets an ill, unbiblical divorce and marries another person. Are they to be considered the rest of their life an adulterer or is it simply an act of adultery? What if you were counseling someone who came to you with an unbiblical divorce? They're members of your church. They're here. What do you do? In my judgment, it is an act of adultery, not a state of adultery, and it can be forgiven. Now, some would say, but you're opening the door for people. I can't help that. I'm only trying to tell you what I think God does. That's it. Thanks.